want to continue praying for Rich as well as some of those others who are, are struggling with some health issues right now. Um, but as you're looking at your bulletin today, I do want to point out that we do have our connection card uh, that's in here. And as always, our, our elders pray for these regularly, and we have prayer requests, the spot for prayer requests at the bottom. I want to remind you that that's there, and that's not just for guests, that's for all of us. And so if you have a particular prayer request, something that you'd just like to lift, the elders be lifting up, um, please make note of that. You can put that in with the offering. You can hand it to me personally. Uh, you can put it up in the office in the, the box that's up there as well. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be making note of those and, and praying for those. Uh, we have a couple announcements. Uh, first of all, Cindy Neese uh, has a quick announcement for the kids. It is, oh my goodness, taco and t-shirt week. And so I will be getting ready for that on Wednesday afternoon at about 4 o'clock. If anybody could come help me chop tomatoes and all those kind of things, that would be great. And because it's taco and t-shirt week, we are setting up tonight after youth group. So if a, a guy or two, a teenager or two, somebody can come and help me set up tables and chairs for that at about 8.30. So those two things, 8.30 tonight to set up and to cut things up Wednesday at about 4. Yes. Actually, it's tacos and t-shirts.
you'd please stand. Let's continue our service by singing together. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 7 through 8 read, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. Praise the Lord, his mercy is more. 
So this is an audience participation message. So everybody's going to help us. We are going to shout for joy to the Lord. And sometimes when I ask you to do things, you know, you're up front and everybody's watching. You feel like, but they're all going to help too, and they're all going to do it. And sometimes grown-ups can be kind of shy about doing such noisy things in church. But we're all going to be noisy. Okay, so everybody think ahead. What are you going to do? Jackie, are you going to whistle? Anything to shout for joy to the Lord. You could sing. You could say any praise things you want. You got something in your head? Because I don't want you to stand there and not know what to do. Okay, do you guys want to stand up too? You want to sit and make them all stand? You better stand too. Okay, everybody stand up. And it says to do it for, in the lesson suggested, a minute. That's a long time. We're going to do it for 10 seconds. Okay, so I'm going to start with 10. So everybody ready? 
We're all going to shout. You're going to be really loud. Shout and praise the Lord with whatever you want. You're all going to do it so nobody's going to hear you. Here we go. One, two, three. Woohoo! Yay, God! You are worthy. Wow! Woohoo! Okay, you're, you're fading, but that's good. Okay, everybody can sit down. That's hard. Ask people to be noisy in church. Oh, doesn't it hurt for Craig. He can be noisy. Okay, so that was a fun thing to do, and an amazing thing that God tells us to shout right there. Shout to the Lord, all the earth, break out and praise and sing for joy. Now, the Bible tells us right there that we can be excited about God. You know, at, at um, Sunday school time, when um, we start prayer time and we adore God, that's the first thing we do, right? We just adore him. Why? What things do we say when we have our prayer time and we adore God that make us know we should be excited about him? We should shout and praise him. What? Who is God? Why should we praise him? Jaden, one thing. He forgives us. Now remember, adoring isn't about us. We're supposed to praise God for who he is. He's forgiving. What else? No, believe. He knows everything about us, every little thing. What else, Eli? He can touch something. Remember, Jesus did that, right? Jesus touched people, and they were well. Who else is God? Why should we praise him? What else is God? What else, Jaden? His love is perfect. Even when we're rotten or naughty or disobedient, he still loves us just as much. How much did he love us? How much does he love us? How much, Felipe? Infinity. Well, what, what did that mean? What did he do for us? Because he loves us so much. He died. Jesus died on the cross when he did nothing wrong ever. So we could have a way to be with him forever. So all those things that God is should make us so full of joy. If we give our chance time to think about a little bit that we remember we should just be bursting with joy so we're going to make something else burst with joy but it's something little i promise it won't be a big boom so i have an old old film canister here and i'm going to put some of this and some of this yeah it will but it's just going to be a little pop. Oops. I think. I got all good smelling this morning, and then I practiced this. So, uh-oh. I just dripped. That was a little bursting. That wasn't a big boom. That was a little bursting. And now I smell like vinegar. So that was just a little bit of burst, a little bit of joy, a tiny bit of joy. But God is holy. He is perfect. He loves you all of the time. He made a way for you to be with him forever. He is all-powerful more than anything he knows everything. 
He is everywhere. Is all of that, should all that make us be bursting with joy? Okay, Felipe and um, Ian, you have a Bible verse at Awana that talks about the same thing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Can you say it together and say it loud so they can hear you? Be joy. So no no matter what happens, because sometimes bad things happen, hard things happen, and it's just part of living in this world where there's sin. But no matter what happens, we have reason to be joyful. And you know what that verse says? Does it say, if you feel like it, if it's a good day, if happy things are happening, it doesn't. It says, be joyful in all things, because God's got it. He knows exactly where you are, exactly what's happening, and he makes it all good for his purpose. He's going to take all of the hard stuff, and he's going to make it work good and give you more and more reason to pray. And you know what? When hard things are happening, if you show joy and love, do you suppose it stands out more than when everything's happy? I had a friend who's a pastor, and he said he would rather do a funeral than a wedding. Because at a funeral, people are looking and listening for hope and for reason and for a purpose. And if we can show joy when hard things are happening, it stands out really, really big. So no matter what's going on, as you grow up, as you were little and in between, show that joy that's just about to pop out of you at every chance you get. Because God is worthy of all praise. I don't think so. We'll try, it. we'll try it again later, okay? We'll, we'll see if there's something else. Okay, bye. Shh, let's pray. Dear Only Father, we thank you so much that you are worthy of our praise, that you are perfectly everything. You are love. You are good. You are the truth. You are forever. We get to be with you forever if we just say yes to Jesus. I know you died for me. You are worthy of us being full of joy, no matter what's going on, bursting and exploding with it every chance we get all over other people so they can see that we love you, that it's valuable and important, and the most important thing, actually, to choose to love you and to let your love just fill us up. So go with these boys and girls and everybody here this morning. Help us to remember, maybe not shout, but to give um, praise and honor to you every chance we get, no matter what's going on, because you are worthy. And the good news about Jesus is worth being ready to explode about. Very wonderful and important, we thank you. So go with us through the rest of our morning and um, help us to learn what you want us to learn so that we're ready for a new week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, you can go sit down. Thank you, Cindy and children. If you'd please stand again, continue to sing. There is no song we could sing to honor the weight of your glory. There are no words we could speak. Capture the depths of
Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 55, verses 6 through 12. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. 
For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Okay, I think Miss Cindy and Miss Haley have children's Sunday school in the back, so it's okay for your mom and dad to go back from, with Mrs. Cindy. You guys can all go now. I was watching the kids as we were popping, you know, film cartons, and just the joy as little Pacey had this look on his face of you. <laughs> this is so exciting, you know, it popped. How much more should we be filled with joy? I mean... We should be thrilled uh, at being in the presence of our Lord and being able to worship Him. That should just be a small glimpse of, of the uh, enjoyment that we have and the joy we have in God's glory. Um, uh, it's fun to watch them. They teach us so much. Well, it's hard to believe, but we are about at the end of the Old Testament in our flyover of the Bible. Uh, we've had have 31 weeks to cover the entire Bible. We're building a, a framework to help us understand the, the God's story, understanding how these individual parts, these individual stories of, of people's lives fit into the overall whole. And today is week 20. As we wrap up the Old Testament this week and next week, I, um, I want to make sure that we have our 15 key words and phrases memorized. And my hope is that these are going to help you as you're reading through the Bible, as you're reading through the prophets and different parts of, of the Bible, uh, that it, it will help you be able to come to those individual stories and have a bigger context. Once again, we've, we've broken things down into to three volumes in the Old Testament. Um, volume 1 covers our first eight keywords. Volume 2 covers uh, three. And Volume 3 has uh, key, three key um, four key phrases. And so let's jump right in and start back with volume one. We've had a, a week off of practice, but I think you all have it still, and so no hints today. Um, let's see if we can get through those. Um, volume one is going to cover the first 2,500 years of human history and of the Bible. And so our first key words are creation. Okay, good job, good job. It's been a couple weeks. And then that takes us to the first, through the first five books of the Bible. And in volume two, we have three key periods of Israel's early leadership, which were? And three kings, good. And then finally, with volume three, we've learned four key phrases. I think I keep forgetting to take the text out of these, so you're going to get hints up here. But uh, that'll help us all. Four key phrases are words that cover about another 500 years of of Israel's and Judah's history, and we have the divided kingdom, 19 and 20, exile, and the return. And 19 and 20 refers to what? Yeah, the kings. 19 kings in the north that were all evil, all bad, and 20 in the south that were mostly bad. Good, good, yeah. We had five that were considered good inside of the Lord, a few others, three others that did okay once in a while, but um, poorly done. But God was working through all that in, this, in his story. Awesome job. Let's keep that up. Let's turn our faces and our hearts to our God. 
and um, the God of truth. And let's start with a word of prayer as we turn our minds to the word of truth that he's given to us. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, uh, again, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you teach us here. Father, it's our desire that we would better understand the scripture. And I, it's my prayer that, that as we continue through your word and, and this overview and look at some of the individual parts, but see how they fit into the whole, I, I pray that, that not only would we have a better understanding of scripture and how it all fits together, but Lord, I, I pray that we would see how each of these stories and how your overall story that you've given to us in your word should change our lives. It should fill us with joy, like we saw here this morning with the, the children who were just excited about a science project. It should fill us with joy as we consider how great you are, as we consider your grace, which you have lavished upon us because your son came and died in our place. He took care of our sin problem. And so because of that, we have life. We have eternal life. We have so much that you've given to us, so many reasons to rejoice, to be excited about serving you every day. So Father, I pray that you would teach us. I pray that you would show us from your word how we can become more like you. Help us as we turn to the book of Esther today. Amen. Well, two weeks from tomorrow uh, is an important holiday. Uh, does anyone know what March 6th is this year? Anybody? No one knows what March 6th is. You don't have that on your calendar? You're not, you're not counting down the days? Like Christmas? Well, if you go to HolidayInsights.com, they will inform you that Monday, March 6th, is National Oreo Cookie Day. Yeah, and, and you are going to miss it. You know, they say that they've done their research, and that the reason that we celebrate this is that this was the day that Oreo cookies came onto the market. Though... They, um, they have not been able to identify who created the holiday since no president has made any proclamation. Well, I can tell you exactly who invented the holiday. There's a guy named Nabisco. <laughs> you know, when it comes to holidays, ignore the marketing ploys. You know, forget about National Dentist Day. Quite honestly, I don't know who, who had the idea that it would be a good idea to have National Dentist Day on the same day as National Oreo Cookie Day. Something's not connecting there. But that's what happens when you let people play with our calendars. Now, Monday, March 6th, is actually a much more important holiday than these. It coincides with the 14th day of Adar on the lunar calendar, which is the Jewish calendar. And it's been celebrated by the Jews for almost 2,500 years. In fact, four, four years from now is the 2500th anniversary of this holiday. It's, the, mo it's the, the last month of the religious calendar on the Jewish calendar. And the 14th day of Adar is a holy day called Purim. How many have heard of Purim before? Okay, a few of you. Good, good. We're going to see why playing games... Uh, and, excuse me. The, does anybody know what the word Purim means? Heard of the holiday. What's that? I think I heard it. Yeah, rolling the dice. Yeah, it's... Um, it's, it's a plural word. You have the I-M ending, like seraphim, cherubim, all those words, it's, it's, uh, that's, the, that's the plural. It's like adding an S in the Hebrew. And so Purim is the plural of the Hebrew word pur, and it means casting of lots or throwing the dice. It's a game of chance. And so for 2,500 years, the Jews have been celebrating a holiday that's named after rolling dice. 
We're going to see why playing games of chance is so significant by the time we come to the end of Esther today. And by the end of this book, you'll understand why the Jews have a holiday named after a game of luck. Let's start with a little bit of context. Uh, do you remember who the first king of Israel was? We've been talking about these, all these kings. King Saul, that's right. Saul uh, is the king that did not have a heart after God's own heart. Uh, There's one particular story that we looked at where God told Saul to wipe out the Amalekites. Do you remember that? Uh, I called them the the Black Widows of the Old Testament. This is the tribe that when the Jews were coming out of Egypt, and they they hadn't quite organized themselves quite yet, and so a lot of the people that were sick and the elderly and the weak were struggling behind. The whole camp was moving forward out of the wilderness, but the elderly and the weak had fallen behind, and the Amalekites chose to start picking them off. And then they went to battle with the Amalekites. And anyway, God had given the Amalekites hundreds of years of opportunities to repent, but they were evil. And as an entire tribe, they particularly offended God over and over. And so hundreds of years later, the Lord specifically commanded Saul to to wipe out the Amalekites. But as we saw, Saul compromised, didn't he? He kept some of the best of the animals alive, and he kept one particular person alive. Do you remember who it was? Yeah, it was our king, a guy named Agag, all right? And so here's Agag, and, and Saul keeps him as a trophy, as kings would kind of do. They would they'd feed him scraps under the table and say, hey, look, at this guy I conquered. And this greatly displeased the Lord. So that was King Saul. Well, that was 1,000 B.C. about. Fast forward about 500 more years, and that brings us through the, the divided kingdom where we saw the 19 kings and the 20 kings. The fall of the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., the Jews have lived in captivity in Babylon, we've met the prophet Jeremiah, we've met the sage Daniel, last week we were in the book of Ezra, where we saw that the first six chapters took place when Cyrus, the king of Persia, this new empire that had conquered Babylon, said, you all go home, go build your temple in Jerusalem, and so the people returned out of exile. And the first wave of Jews returned back to Judah, and they started to rebuild. Started to rebuild some of their towns. They started the foundation of the temple, though it wasn't finished for quite a while. But then, then the scribe Ezra, uh, we saw it doesn't actually appear till chapter 7. So there's this big gap between the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7. Almost 60 years takes place between chapters 6 and 7 when Ezra leads the next wave of the Jews out of Babylon and back to the Promised Land. Now, I'm bringing all of this up, not only for a little bit of context, but because the book of Esther happens between those two chapters. Uh, In fact, Esther is going to happen before Nehemiah. In your Bible, it probably goes Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, right? The reason they put Ezra and Nehemiah together is that in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. They're just a big scroll, so we split them up into two. Kind of like First and Second Chronicles, it's, it's one, scroll, one book in two scrolls. First Samuel, Second Samuel, First Kings, First, Second Kings. Ezra, Nehemiah is considered one book in the Hebrew Bible. So rather than divide those up and put Esther in between, because it's chronologically in between, uh, those stay in your Bible together. So Esther happens between chapter 6 and chapter 7. If you're reading through the Bible with us, that's why you read Ezra chapters 1 through 6 a couple weeks ago. This last week, you've been reading through Esther, and this coming week, uh, you're going to be finishing the book of Ezra and and moving into Nehemiah. But that's where we're at. 
It's about the year 483 B.C., and the Persian Empire has seen the long reigns of its first three kings, its first three emperors, Cyrus the Great, his son Cambyses, and Darius the Great. And there's a fourth king that arose in Persia who is far richer than, than all of them, and his name was Ahasuerus. So go ahead and say that with me, just because it's so fun to say these guys' names. Okay, Ahaz, so it's Ahasuerus. Let's all say it together. Ahasuerus. Well, you guys are amazing. Now, I'm telling you, Curtis and Kimberly, every single week we give you some incredible ideas for names. So if you don't use one of these, the events of the book of Esther um, take place over about a 10-year period. Uh, and and uh, we were told about this king who was, who was richer than all the others. In fact, Daniel had prophesied that this king would, would rise up and he would be this rich. So how, how rich was he? Pretty filthy rich. Let's look at verses 1 through 9 of the first chapter. In chapter 1, we read this. Now in the days of, everybody say it with me, of Ahasuerus. You guys had it, I didn't. I slipped all over that. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia. That's a big place, isn't it? Himalayan mountains all the way down into Africa, past Egypt. That's incredible. Over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. Did you hear that? Not 180 hours. 180 days they had this feast. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And so not only all the officials that have come from all over the world for a six-month feast, but now he's going to take all the people who are living in the capital, all the commoners, and, and, and they're included in it as well, it seems. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So you get the idea of what kind of party this was. Queen Vashti, verse 9, also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Not told much about hers. Seems like it was a little bit more simple, a little bit more controlled and, and delicate. But I mean, that's wealth. Again, the book of Daniel had prophesied the richness of this fourth king over Persia over 50 years earlier. He had said that the fourth king will arise who will be richer than them all. Daniel chapter 10, it's there. The Persian Empire had become rich beyond the wildest imagination of anyone living up to that time. And this feast just gives us a picture of the extravagance of, of this, this king. Chapter 1 goes on to describe how this feast unfolded. 
It, it was on the final day of the seven days of the feast, and Ahasuerus, he'd had too much to drink. Scripture tells us that he summoned his wife, Queen Vashti, to come so that she could show the people and the princes her beauty. Now, the text doesn't elaborate on what that meant. Uh, there, there are some commentators that have expressed that uh, this was a drunken command to Vashti that required probably some sort of indecent appearance. There are other commentators that disagree with that and just say uh, that probably the, the point of her, her anger and her refusal was simply because she refused to lower herself to making an appearance before all these drunken commoners just so that she could be paraded as a trophy. The emphasis of the text, though, is on what happens next. Vashti refuses. She tells the king of Persia, this king of 127 provinces, who's richer probably than any man that had ever lived before, she tells him no. She refuses, and Ahasuerus feels offended. I mean, so offended that he calls his advisors together and says, what do we do? And, and they create a law because of Vashti's insult. They're afraid that the women might get the word that they could do this too. So they're going to put them in their place. He's a king of 127 provinces who rules the world, but he can't even rule his own wife. That's his perspective on it. He can create laws that the whole world has to obey, but he can't force his wife to bend her will. And so he begins a process of creating a law that deposes Vashti and basically prevents her from ever coming into his presence ever again. Her position is going to be given to another person. And in verse 20 they state, So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, and this is their law, listen to this, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. That was the purpose of the law. Ladies, what are you thinking? This is pretty cool stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Not quite. Now, I, I want to point out, while we're here, a, a misconception that the world makes about the Bible. The world, without actually taking the time to usually read what it actually says, paints this picture of God's Word in this negative light. And, and it's common to hear people say how women are degraded in the Bible, undervalued in the Bible, they're looked down upon in Scripture, and that God has painted this horrible picture of who women are and, what, and the value that they, that they have. The, the world would have you think that God has tried to oppress women and, and hold them down. But I want you to understand that while the Bible presents a historical picture of the things that happened throughout history and how women have been oppressed throughout history in this situation as well, it's important to recognize that in a book of the Bible where a woman is the heroine, that Scripture frequently and consistently de demonstrates the value and the dignity of the women of the world. Paul gets picked on a lot. People say, oh yeah, Paul hated women. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Paul raised women to a position that they had never been before. In a culture where women were property, if you read the New Testament, you see how women were a part of the church. They were considered heirs of the kingdom of God. And, and so while there are different roles that you're going to see throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, understand that the Bible elevates women to a position that was unheard of in the cultures of their day. And this is an example of that where in Persia we see that women were treated with such disrespect. And for example, in this passage, Vashti is presented in this passage as a woman who was in the right, who was wronged by her husband, the king. While he was lavishing a drunken feast upon the men of the kingdom, Vashti was offering a feast for the women. And we're not told much about that, but it seems that it was a, more of a simple 
uh, feast is just stated. There, there was nothing to elaborate on because of probably the nature of what she was doing. It was more dignified. The king chooses to parade his wife as a toy in front of the people. And Vashti is the one who maintains a sense of decorum, a, a sense of self-respect that afforded her position. The edict that's intended to put women in their place that was made by this king, and this is real history, this happened, Scripture paints as an injustice. This is a horrible thing. It's important for us for an accurate portrayal of the injustices that have been carried out by the rulers of the world, but it's also important for the context because this is the scenario which we are going to find the main character who is a woman that she gets thrown into. This is her husband to be. Well, next we're introduced to a Jew named Mordecai. And his niece was named Hadassah. He had taken her as his own daughter when she was orphaned. Her parents had died when she was young, and so he raised her himself. And we're told that she was very lovely. She was a beautiful woman, not only in, in character, but, but she was lovely to look at. And she was also called Esther, her, her Persian name. But Mordecai and Esther are put into a predicament. You see, the king starts getting a little depressed. He starts realizing once he's sobered up that he made a mistake, that sending Vashti away that he did was probably not good. And because of the laws in Persia, he can't change the law himself. He, he is as subject to the law as everyone else. And so as the king, he doesn't have the ability to say, oh, let's change that one, bring her back. She's gone. And he realizes, yeah, that probably wasn't the smartest thing to do. And so time goes by and he's struggling and his advisors see it and so they they give him some advice and they convince him rather easily that he should hold what basically amounts to a, a giant beauty pageant each young virgin went through 12 months of beauty treatments and then was brought to the king now, again the scripture is unfolding for us the events that esther is thrust into and I want you to understand that, that this is not a love story. As you're reading through the book of Esther, you know, we, we have movies out there with, you know, some of the most popular actresses, most of the most beautiful actresses. And, and, and usually the king is presented as what? You know, he's, he's Aladdin. You know, he's this beautiful young prince that you know, she falls in love with. And you watch these movies about Esther, and, and it's this, you know, this poor orphan girl who happens to be so beautiful, and she meets her prince, and and, and maybe there's some struggles at first, but you know, then they fall in love and, and it's happily ever after. That is not the story that we find in the Bible, and that was not Esther's story. This was a horrible thing that every single one of these girls was going through. They were taken into the king for basically what is a one-night stand. Probably hundreds or thousands of them. And there was a horrible thing that they were put through, and then... And then afterwards, they, they would spend the remainder of their lives in the king's harem. Most of them probably would never see him again. And they would never have the privilege or the joy of taking a husband for themselves. For Esther, this was a prison sentence for all of these women. It was a prison sentence, and this was a great injustice that was taking place. And that's the context of our story. It was a prison sentence that the Persians made glamorous with beauty treatments and a pageant where they paraded all these women in front of the king. Well, by the end of chapter 2, however, Esther has won the favor of everyone there. Not only her character, but also her beauty has attracted them to her. 
And we're told that Ahasuerus loved Esther more than all the other women. And he made her queen instead of Vashti. And, and to this, add to this, there's this brief account of a plot that, that rises up. A couple of his eunuchs are upset about something, and so they plot to what sounds like they're, they're going to harm him, they're going to murder him. Some sort of assassination is what's implied. Uh, but Mordecai, Esther's husband, he hears of it. He tells Esther, and then she passes the word to the king in Mordecai's name, and, and she saves his life. And then record is made of Mordecai's deed, and they write it in a book so that it, his good deed would be chronicled. There's one other slightly important detail here in our story. No one, including the king, no one knows that Esther is a Jew. That's a small detail, isn't it? An important detail. Now, there's a big question that, that people ask when they read the book of Esther, and maybe you've noticed it when you read the book of Esther at some point. Where is God in all of this? Where is God in the story of Esther? Throughout this series, we've spoken many times about the upper story and, and the lower story, right? And, and we've seen that what's happening from God's perspective, and we've seen what's happening from man's perspective. And, and oftentimes we lose sight of what's happening up here, don't we? We see the events of our lives, we see the events of these individual stories, and, and connecting them all together to see God's plan not only in all the stories of the Bible, but also the story of my life, sometimes I kind of miss how all this fits into what God is doing. We often lose sight of the big picture, and we're often tempted to doubt whether God truly has everything under control. Indeed, sometimes it appears that God is absent from the picture altogether from a human perspective. And that's the central point of the entire book of Esther. The narrator purposefully leaves out the name of God throughout the entire book. Have you ever noticed that before? God's name is not mentioned one time in Esther. Not once is the name Yahweh mentioned. Not once is he called Lord. Not once is the general word God even mentioned in the book. God is never referred to. The closest that the book is going to get to it is that, is, is that Esther is going to say, fast with me. She doesn't even say pray. It's implied. It's implied that there's a God there, but fast with me. Well, f why are we fasting? So we can pray, but that's not said. God is never mentioned in the entire book of Esther. And that, that troubles some people. They're like, well, in fact, so much so that at one point in church history, there were a lot of pastors and and theologians said uh we put we probably shouldn't put esther in the bible because god's name's not mentioned in it did you know that esther almost got left out because it was missing something certainly this is a book that we wouldn't want to preach on right if god's not mentioned in it but i'd like to point out to you that this absence of god in the book of esther is the point of all of it that's the idea. How often does your life feel like that? How often, when you face depression, you're facing anxiety, times of trouble, sickness, are you tempted to wonder, where, where's God at? Where is he right now? What's he doing? 
And, and on the lower story, sometimes it feels like God's absent and, he, and, and his name isn't mentioned anywhere in my life. You might be tempted to wonder where God went to. And as you read the book of Esther, you might wonder where God went to in this story too. And this is where Scripture masterfully shows us that even though the name of God is never mentioned in the entire book of Esther, His presence and His power and His sovereign control of every single part of this story is overwhelmingly present and beautiful. So here's how the book of Esther unfolds. We're next introduced to a man named Haman, who is a descendant of Agag. It calls him an Agagite. In fact, when the Jews read the story of Esther, they read through the entire book on the, the day of Purim, and every time that Haman's name is mentioned, you know what they do? You read through the book of Esther, and every time Haman's name is mentioned, everybody hisses and boos. And every time Mordecai's name is mentioned, what do they do? Woo! Like we just did here with Cindy. All right, everybody gets excited. Um, well, we're told that Haman was an Agagite, and biblical scholars think that probably what's going on here, do you remember the story of King Saul that we just mentioned? And what was the king's name that he kept as a trophy and put under the table? Agag. This is the same guy. And so here we are 500 years later, and one of these king's descendants is still living, and he hates the Jews, loathes the Jews. More than the Grinch hated Christmas, he despised the Jews. And Ahasuerus elevates Haman over all the other officials. And that's not good for Mordecai, is it? And that's not good for Esther. In fact, the text points out that Mordecai, and even, and Esther, guess who they are descended from? A guy named Kish. You remember who Kish was? <laughs> yeah, Saul's father. Oh, so now we have a descendant of Agag and a descendant of King Saul's dad. That kind of creates more complications in it, doesn't it? And so uh, not only that, but Mordecai won't bow down to Haman. And this makes trouble. That escalates when Haman decides that, that his position of power that, that has been given to him is an opportunity to kill Mordecai. In fact, he builds, he builds um, gallows on the wall. I, th I think it says the wall. I have to look back on that one. He builds gallows to hang Haman as well as kill all the other Jews. Look at verses 7 through 9 in chapter 3. Let's jump over to chapter 3. In verse 7 it says, In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. So, so basically what's happening, it doesn't mean that they, they threw the dice, waited 24 hours, threw dice again, and did that for several months. It, it means that they cast the dice uh, probably 12 times until it came out and said, okay, it's going to be on the twelfth month. And then they cast the dice against, again, and it came out so that it would be the thirteenth day. And so they cast these dice. And Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. Exterminate them. 
And through, so through the rolling of the dice, the casting of lots, per, a date for their extermination of the, Jew, the, the, the extermination of the Jews is set. The king stamps it into law that on the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month of the year, the Jews are going to be annihilated. All the Jewish people from India to Ethiopia have 11 months to live. In chapter 4, the Jews go into mourning. Esther hears of the law, but she fears to say something. Uh, it, it wasn't permitted for Esther to come before the king. If she wanted to see the king, she had to be invited. He, he had to want to see her. She didn't get to want to see him. Things haven't really improved for her, have they? And so even though he loved her, even though he favored her, she hasn't seen him for 30 days. And you do not walk in to see the king unless he summons you, even if you're his wife. It's at this point, at the end of chapter 4, that Mordecai replies to Esther, and he, he sends a message to her with some of the wisest and most eloquent of words, and he says, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance shall rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, now, now get where Esther's at. Okay, she's gone through this beauty pageant. She's gone through the whole one-night stand thing, and then he loved her and chose her. But, I mean, sh this isn't a fairy tale. And I don't think she's sitting in the palace going, boy, I really have it good here. Um, it, it destroyed her life. Just as much as it would destroy any of you to marry somebody that you didn't want to marry and were forced into that kind of relationship. Her uncle comes to her and says, look, Esther, life's pretty horrible right now. You're in a dark valley, and you're probably going to stay there for the rest of your life. And, and they probably had some discussions where they recognized how horrible this was. They had to think through their perspective, I would imagine. I imagine there was a lot of challenging days of looking at all this. And Haman says, look, maybe, maybe you're in the palace and you've gone through all this for such time as this. Maybe you're there for a particular reason. Understand that even though the name of God and God himself are not once mentioned in the book of Esther. His presence is entirely present. Mordecai has complete confidence in God's ability to save. He has complete confidence in the faithfulness that God has towards his promises. Even though it probably felt like God was absent in their time of distress. And even though life often overwhelms you on the lower story. Just as it does me. It may feel like, like there's no upper story where God is tying all these things together. You need to understand that you can trust God's power to deliver and you can trust God's faithfulness to keep His promises. But the question is, how are you going to respond? Will you respond in faith? Will you believe? We have a Savior who died on the cross for our sins. A Savior who fulfilled His promises 
and and he came and he made payment, made atonement for our sins, just as it had been prophesied back in Genesis chapter 3. Just as it had been prophesied in the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And as we've seen, as the story has unfolded, God has fulfilled his promise by sending his son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, who died in our place. He paid the penalty that we couldn't pay. And sometimes we, in spite of all of this, in spite of all the things that should make us like little Pacey down here going, oh, this is so exciting. We should have that thrill of what our God has done for us. But sometimes life gets heavy. And we get depressed, anxious, sick. Perhaps your pain, your trials, your darkest hour, perhaps you've been brought to that place, though, for such a time as this. You have no idea how God is going to take these days that you are walking through. But you can believe that the Lord did not allow you to come to this place for no reason at all. Who knows what God intends for you and how he wants to impact others and the world around you because of the place that you've been brought to. If you read the book of Esther, if you've been reading it this last week with us, uh, you know the tension that's brought out in this, the climax of the story. Um, we're not going to have time to unfold all of that today. But there's a lot of irony that takes place as the king just by chance happens to be reading through the Chronicles. He, he's up late at night, having a hard time sleeping. So what do you do? You get a whole bunch of boring manuscripts recording what happened day to day a couple of years back and mordecai's name comes up oh yeah that's the guy that you know he heard that plot against me and hey what'd we ever do for that guy calls his advisors and hey what'd we do for mordecai nothing and so he calls in haman you remember, you remember the story haman what, what should i do for somebody that's really special what should I do for somebody, you know, what would, what would you do if I really want to show somebody honor, somebody that deserves the best? What, what would you do for them? Oh, <laughs> what's Haman thinking? <laughs> I'm the second most powerful person in the kingdom. Uh, well, what would I do? Um, I don't know. I, I'd parade them around the city. You know, give them special clothes, decorate them, take them through, you know, a chariot, your chariot. Not, not just a chariot, put them on your chariot. And show the whole city how you honor this man. Oh, good idea, Haman. Hey, I want you to do that for Mordecai. Oh, what? I mean, what, what? What does Haman have on the other side of the city? Yeah, he's already built the gallows to hang Mordecai. And now the king says, hey, go parade him around the city. Dress him in the finest robes and, and show him the highest honors. So there's a lot of irony that unfolds as, as, you, as you continue to read through this. Esther prepares a set of feasts. She decides, I'm going to go to the king. But she does it in a way, she's very delicate about it. She's very um, thoughtful about it. Uh, she makes a feast and says, I want you and Haman to come and enjoy the feast. And they come in and, and he says, well, Esther, what's your request? Ask anything. What, what do you want? Rolls a little, you know, on, on without carpet. What do you want? 
She said, I, I want to give you another feast. Now, you get the idea that feasts are kind of important throughout the story. That's kind of the narrative device. You know, we're, we're throwing feasts for the people, feasts for all the governors. Vashti throws a feast. Uh, Esther is now throwing a feast. Uh, it, it, we find that a lot throughout this story. And she said, I, I want to throw you another feast. C- come back on this appointed day and, and, uh, and Haman, King Ahasuerus, a lovely husband that I've fallen in love with and lived happily ever after with, come and I want to give you another feast. Okay, so they come in for another feast, and, and at the right moment, Esther reveals and says, there's been a plot against my people. Now, this is right after Haman's been out, and, and what happened? He's parading Mordecai around, and he's starting to see the writing on the wall going, yeah, something's not right here. And so he comes in, and, and, and Esther says, there's a plot against my people, and, and of course, Ahasuerus is furious that somebody would try to kill his queen, because at this point, he still doesn't know that she's a Jew. He doesn't know that he made an edict against her. And so he says, who's done this? It's Haman. Oh. So the king leaves. Haman falls on his knees, and he's grabbing it at Esther. And when the king comes back in, it looks like he's, he's assaulting the queen. Well, the tables are turned. The gallows which Haman had prepared to hang Mordecai are used for his own execution. But the edict is still there. And what we have to understand about the Persians is that when you make a law, you can't change the law. The king can't change the law. And so there's still this predicament. Even Ahasuerus, the most powerful man in the world, he can't overturn what he's done. So Mordecai and the advisors, they, they come up with a plan. And an edict was to be carried out on the 13th day of the 12th month that reverses the plan because what happens is he says the jews have a right to defend themselves anyone who is their enemy anyone who seeks their harm they have the right to defend themselves in fact they have the right to go and attack those enemies and so if you intended harm against the jews now oh my plot over the last 11 months just got turned upside down the tables are turned the enemies are struck down the lives of god's people are saved Again, keep in mind that, that God's name is still never mentioned in all of this. The only thing that's mentioned is, you know, by chance, King Ahasuerus is reading the books. Was it by chance? No. And they rolled the dice, a game of chance. Was, was it chance that it happened on the 12th month? You know, at the end of the year? No. All, all of this. You know, God's name is not mentioned, but he is ever present, overwhelmingly so, throughout the entire book. And so another edict went out uh, after this, that in the capital city, that, that day that the Jews are allowed to take vengeance on their enemies, is appointed to the next day, the 14th of the 12th month, an extra day within the city. And in chapter 9, we're given this summary at the end of things. In verse 23, it says, So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of all the Jews had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and to destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pur. 
Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year. That these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan province and city and that these days of purim should never fall into disuse among the jews nor should the commemoration of these days cease among all their descendants and here we are 2496 years later two weeks from today on monday march 6th the jews will once again celebrate the feast of Purim. And this is why the Jews celebrate a holy day that's named after a game of chance. Are they celebrating chance? No. They're celebrating that even in the midst of what seems like coincidence, God is at work. The day named after a game of chance, but in a book where luck and circumstance are actually the means by which God carries out his sovereign plan. In a book where God's name is strangely absent, in a book where it feels like his presence is sometimes unknown, God reveals he's faithful to seek the welfare and the peace of his people. There's one last piece, and this is important. You can skip over chapter 10, right? It's three verses long. How important could that be? Oh, it's an important piece, and you need to see this. One last piece that brings the book to a beautiful end, just as beautiful certainly as was the woman Hadessa, Esther, more so. Esther and Mordecai brought about the deliverance of the Jews, we're told, and at the end of chapter 9, we're told that it was Esther herself who confirmed the practice of Purim. King Ahasuerus advanced in Mordecai to the most powerful position in the kingdom. He gave him high honors. But I, but I want you to notice in the conclusion to this amazing book, about God's care for his people and God's presence among his people, even when his name's not mentioned. I want you to notice his care for his people and what it says about Mordecai in verse 3. Chapter 10, verse 3 records that Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus, and he was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. Four. Why was he great? For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. And here's the twist. Here's the marvelous twist of God's plan in all of this. Who was it really who sought the welfare of his people? God. Even though his name is never mentioned. Who was it really who spoke peace to all his people, even though his voice was never heard. Here's God. But in God's sovereignty, he didn't just use blind luck and what appeared to others as pure chance to accomplish his purpose. He could have done that, right? He used that as part of it, but that wasn't the main thing. In God's grace, he didn't just use circumstance to bring about good for his people. Could, could have. Sometimes he does. 
but that wasn't it. In the majestic unraveling of God's glorious will, he didn't just speak his peace into existence for the lives of his people. He used his servants that he had placed in a dark day of gloom, but that were there for such a time as this. And it was those very individuals who fasted and prayed to the one who's not even mentioned. And it was those very individuals whom God used as his ambassadors of welfare and peace. So much so that God gives credit to Mordecai for the very things that he accomplished through the man. And perhaps God has placed you where you are today for such a time as this. Father, we thank you that you are not a God who just leaves life up to luck and chance and circumstance. We thank you that you are a God who has never abandoned us to our enemies, to those who hate you, to the great serpent of old who despises you and despises your people. We thank you that you haven't abandoned us to those times of darkness in our lives, to those times that we don't understand. And we thank you that your presence is just as real even when we don't feel it. Might we trust that your power is just as real even when your name is not being spoken? Might we trust you that you are faithful and that you keep your promises even when we don't see you? We know that in this journey we walk by faith, not by sight. And we know that there are times you put us in difficult situations. You allow things to happen to us, sometimes that are of evil purposes designed by evil men and evil angelic beings. But you allow certain things to happen to us and to put us in these circumstances because how you are going to show your glory through us. And so we give you praise for that. We give you praise for your amazing sovereign will. And we ask you to help us to trust you in this. We thank you for your son and all that he has done for us. And even more so than Mordecai and Esther and all these people that first celebrated Purim, we have so much more to give you thanks for and so much more to live for. So much more that you've revealed to us about your plan, which you accomplished through your son who died for us and rose from the dead. You conquered death and you conquered sin. And we look forward to your son's return. Please stand. Of righteousness. 
fellowship right after this and then we'll have Sunday school following that and if anyone would like to pray with someone we have someone that is equipped to do that that would be Jared Eikhoff and he will be in the room as you go through the double doors to the left the first door to the left um, join me in closing in prayer please dear Heavenly Father we are so thankful for the grace that you give us Lord, we'd ask that you would give us the spirit of boldness that we could go out and proclaim your word. 
Lord, I ask that you would uh, give blessings to this congregation, and we ask that you would help us to recognize all the opportunities that you give us, that we can glorify you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.